Asshole Cord is a bi-weekly podcast in which a group of lifelong friends choose a controversial public figure and examine their history through available public records and various publications to determine if that person is as much of an asshole as the general public suspects. We rate the subjects on a not-so-scientific scale, ranging from Mr. Rogers to Hitler, 1 to 11, and average out the three scores in the end for our final number. Just a reminder, our judgment has no legal weight, is strictly an opinion, and is subject to change at any time especially in the case of new evidence. It shouldn't be taken seriously, so just don't. There are certain things that just feel distinctly American. Things that when brought up, any person in the world would likely conjure up a big flapping image of the stars and stripes in their mind. I'm talking about things like baseball and apple pie and Mount Rushmore. I'm talking the bald eagle and private prisons and a healthcare system so utterly broken and expensive as to make the rest of the developed world whisper to themselves, what the fuck is going on over there? And the subject of today's show, like all those things good and bad, is practically synonymous with good old America. I'm talking about John Wayne. There are few bigger stars in all of Hollywood history, and John Wayne's take as the American cowboy in the Wild West is the very definition of iconic. He was the masculine ideal of an American for at least two generations, possibly three, venerated by the American public as much as the real cowboys and outlaws that he portrayed so often. But was John Wayne really the tough hombre that he played? Was he as staunch an American patriot as he made himself out to be? Was his real name even John Wayne? Tune in today as we explore all the good and bad of the Duke himself on this episode of Asshole Court. Slap some bacon on a biscuit and let's go. We're burning daylight. Okay, so before we get started on John Wayne, uh, we want to give a big shout out to Zach Alfred for the show topic request on Instagram. This was a few months ago, so appreciate that one, Zach. Oh yeah, Zach. Awesome. Big ups, man. Congrats Thanks, on getting that uh, request put into action. There you Here go. There you go, man. It's that easy, guys. Go up there, request something, and who knows? You might be just like Zach here. Yeah, we get tons of requests and stuff, and we try to, to do the ones that uh, we really like and stuff like that, but we really appreciate you guys kicking in constantly. So thanks a lot. Uh, with that in mind, let's go ahead and start with preliminary scores on John Wayne. Randy, what you got? All right. John Wayne, iconic name, right? Here's the deal. I uh, can probably count on zero fingers the number of movies I've ever watched of John Wayne. Right. Yeah, me too. Like in full, right? Yeah. You're not a big uh, movie guy anyway. I'm not a big movie guy. Certainly not a big old movie guy. Not a big old, like the Westerns I never got yeah. into. I remember there was a TV show Bonanza I used to yeah, play back yeah. in the day. I just couldn't get into it. Yeah, I was I wasn't born and raised with like cowboys and Indians right. and shit. Like I don't know, just kind of wasn't me. But but the like image and iconic kind of like mantra and macho that this guy, the vibe this guy gives off yeah. of, is pretty fucking cool, right? Like everybody just regards him as super fucking tough mm-hmm. and like no nonsense and like. Oh, he'll handle it. You know, the Duke, he had a cool yeah. nickname, like kind of seemed like he was the darling of Hollywood. You didn't hear much, but I think that may be because of the time that he lived. Right. Because you see a lot of stars back then, like the baseball great Mickey Mantle. That guy was a raging alcoholic yeah. and was just kind of off the chain. You didn't hear a lot about that because yeah. the writers liked him and yep. they yeah, didn't right. want to write about that. Get swept under the rug. And I think that may have been the case. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Just kind of taking a guess, right? Not everybody's perfect. Uh, the thing about his name... I. Do know he has a funny name. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to give away what I think it is, yeah, but we'll get into that yeah. certainly. Um, but that, yeah, it's kind of funny when I remember learning about that. So off the rip, I've got the Duke pretty low, man. I've got the Duke at a four point one one. Okay, to start four point one one. Four point one one for Randy and Buddy. What do you have on the Duke, John Wayne? So me like Randy, um, I also I, I I didn't watch any of those like old Western movies growing up. 
you know, with my dad bringing home a bunch of movies when I was young, it was always what was new and in the movie theater. Yeah, you guys had pick of the litter. It was awesome. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, but, you know, I never went back and watched any of the old stuff in that sense. You know, I watched, you know, like I liked some Westerns like Tombstone and stuff like yeah. that. A cool Tombstone's Western. Yeah. 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 Tombstone is incredible. Yeah. Even still today, I, I watched it just like a year ago and yeah. I mean, it still holds its Bell weight. Kilmer should have won the Academy Award for his portrayal as Doc Holliday. I Gosh. mean, I will die on that hill. It's insane that he didn't even get nominated. Yeah. It's insane. He did so good. I mean, and they did good with the makeup. He looked very pale oh, and yeah. just sickly. And yeah. yeah, it was a fantastic role. You see John Wayne, you know, um, little stills of him and stuff like that. And you hear him, you know, quoted in so many movies. Mm-hmm. I remember him from The Professional and Leon. And one of the scenes, uh, Leon and Natalie Portman are like bored. They're kind of like playing charades where they're dressing up like celebrities and trying to get the other person to guess who it is. Right. And the one that Leon does is he comes walking out like a cowboy and he comes walking up and he's like, okay, pilgrim. And she's like, uh, I don't know. And he's like, John Wayne. Yeah. <laughs> but that's like, that's pretty much my frame of reference. Yeah. For him. So, so quick, you know, trivia. You remember in Tombstone? Yeah. When, what's one of the most famous lines that Doc Holliday says in that movie that everybody. I'm, I'm your Huckleberry. Right. Yeah. It's not actually what he said or should have said technically okay should have been Hucklebearer. oh i've heard and this, a huckleberry yeah. is somebody that carries your coffin yeah so um, when he, they're like do you want to come help me i'll be your huckleberry. yeah and he might have said it. i gotta have to go back and watch it it sounded like he said huckleberry but i don't everybody, everybody says, says huckleberry. Way, yeah yeah, yeah. But i think it's huckleberry. yeah and that's a coffin carrier i've heard bearer. i heard this recently and, yeah. and then i was like huh it's pretty cool but i yeah. my favorite was I've got two guns for the each of you. He said, you're so drunk, you're seeing double. And he pulled out his pistol. He said, I got I got two guns, one for the each of you. <laughs> such a such a great portrayal, man. There yep. should have been a Doc Holiday movie itself, but it's all good. It's all right. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely one of my favorite performances from Val, for sure. Oh, certainly. So, um, yeah. So, no, I really don't know too much about him. You know, I've, I've heard him quoted over the years many times, and he definitely has a quote or two that I love. Um, one of them is, uh, life is tough, but it's even tougher if you're stupid. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's just, yeah. uh, I always thought that was a good one. Yeah. Um, but you know, I don't really know too much about him in his personal life mm-hmm. and off screen. So if we say the average person is a three or a four, I got to assume somebody who was the king of badasses portrayed in movies probably mm-hmm. was. A little bit more than a three or four, but I'm also a little bit low like Randy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to put him at a 4.56. 4.56. Right off the rip. All right. And uh, we'll see where he lands by the end of the show. All, All right. right. Mike, you take us home. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I, I knew a little bit more about John Wayne. I didn't watch a lot of his movies. I don't. I, I honestly struggled to think of a movie I've watched all the way through as well. For the longest time, I hated old movies. I used to go to my grandmother's when I was younger all the time, and she did nothing but watch like Turner classic movies. It was all these old, old, old old movies, and they were sort of on in the background for me. And then honestly, when my son was born, I spent some time trying to understand like why people loved certain old movies and like started watching them and stuff like that. And uh, I've talked about it on the show before, like a lot of it is still like stage acting. Mm-hmm. which I fucking hate. It's just really over the top. There's no nuance to it. It doesn't yeah. feel real at all. It yep. feels like somebody giving a performance as opposed to like a portrayal of an actual event. The sets are hilarious. Sometimes you're like, that's a painting. That's fucking yeah. hilarious. <laughs> uh, and yeah, and it, it, all the characters are entirely one dimensional for the most part. You know, the bad guy is infinitely bad. Everybody gets shot and falls uh, off of a, uh, off of a porch somewhere, you know? Yeah. Um, Although there's something to be said about watching like Miracle on 34th Street when, you know, Christmas Eve or something. Oh, no, don't get me wrong. There are some great old movies. Yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with what you watched when you were young and growing up. For sure. You know, I mean, and that's how you can go back to that nostalgia area. But if you didn't grow up watching it, it's hard, especially with the way that special effects have come up in the movies uh, for our generation to sit there and go back to a 1940s or 50s flick and be like, that was badass. Even I can stomach a Christmas story one one time per holiday season. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's on for damn near a month. Yeah, one time I'll watch it. I I I watched some Hitchcock movies at a certain point because when you see stuff like they're like okay the greatest movie of all time is Citizen Kane and and we watched it in in, um, in a class in high school 
And had the teacher not explained everything to us, I would have been like, this is fucking horrible. But when he explained it, I was like, okay, I get what they were trying to do with the shots and like what the story was. And it's interesting. But for me, like the cutoff really for movies starting to get very good is like the early 70s. Like up until I watched like The Godfather, I'm not like, okay, this is just a good film no matter what. You right. know what I'm saying? Sure. Uh, I, I, I tried to watch some of Hitchcock's stuff, like The Man in, uh, in the, with the Rear Window with Jimmy Stewart or whatever. And it was like, okay, it was good. But it just, again, it feels like I'm watching a play that's, and yeah. they're shooting it on sets. So yeah. that's also why it feels like a play. All right, but I'm digressing there for sure. So about John Wayne himself, I didn't like... The the I don't I'm not a big fan of like the sort of uh, stoic masculine cowboy guy you know like, I knew always, you wouldn't be yeah, yeah. <laughs> it always feels like a, a put on like there are legitimately people that are like that out there but I feel like most of the people that act that way are like acting yes that yeah way. Like, they're like no I'm tough as hell <laughs> um and uh, I knew some stuff about him too that well, we're gonna get into for sure that makes him a, a little worse than the average person so uh, I'm gonna put him at a five to start. All right. All right. All right. With a 4.11 from Randy, a 4.56 from Buddy, and a 5.0 from Mikey, John Wayne's pre-show asshole score is a 4.55. Oh, 4.55 puts him just between Justin Bieber and Tom Cruise. <laughs> okay, yeah. Hey, well, at least he's, you know, like with the movie star Tom Cruise, like one of the bigger ones of our generation. That's right. Yeah. yeah, Bieber is a 4.5. Tom Cruise is a 4.58. Yeah. yeah. Dustin Diamond is a 4.6. Yeah. That is, uh, you know, probably one of the first times in history that Dustin Diamond's screech from Saved by the Bell has been discussed with uh, John Wayne. It would be awesome to see Dustin Diamond, like, exchanged into roles like uh, John Wayne, like, who shot Liberty Valance or... I mean, any of them. Hondo. And then put John Wayne in as Screech. Yeah, exactly. Where he's at the max, yeah. like, falling downstairs and oh, shit. Oh, he's going to wreck Zach Morris. <laughs> like, <laughs> Zach Morris makes out with Lisa Turtle, dude. He's getting punched over, like, through the table at the max. And then he's going to stand up and ask Slater if he wants some. <laughs> he's going to make the robot behind the scenes or That's something right. like that. So. <laughs> what if, if Slater did want some? And then it, like, it was, like, a, a pretty good fight for a second, and then he just... John Wayne managed to pull his pistol out and blows his Slater's head clean <laughs> he off. Pulls a fork off the table and stabs him. Sweet. Yeah. All right. That's well, how John Wayne would go down and save by the bell, folks. <laughs> Took it to the max. Yeah, that's, it. that's it. Are you guys uh, ready to get into John Wayne Pilgrims? Giddy up, partner. Let's do it. All right, in 1906, the Buffalo Bill Wild West show was making its way across the country, delighting all sorts of non-cowboys and city folk with wild cowboy tales and shooting demonstrations. One hot August night, after imbibing in copious amounts of home-brewed whiskey, Buffalo Bill Cody, Wild Bill Hickok, Texas Jack Omohundro, and Annie Oakley all engaged in the nastiest of Wild West orgies. Nice. Oh, yeah. poor Annie. Yeah, yeah. Bukaki. Damn, Buchanan. That's <laughs> even though she was old as fuck, too old to safely carry a baby to term, and quite honestly, too old to engage in nasty cowboy orgies. Annie Oakley managed to give birth to a cowboy super baby, John Wayne, on a tour stop the following spring in Winterset, Iowa. Because a baby, no matter how super rugged it might be, would just slow down a traveling cowboy orgy disguised as a Wild West shoot 'em up show. Annie left him to the care of two mere mortals. Clyde Leonard Morrison, and Mary Molly Alberta Brown. Of course, none of this is true. <laughs> John Wayne's beginning story is nowhere near as cool or sexy as that. His true parents were indeed Clyde Morrison and Molly Brown. In fact, the only thing remarkable about John Wayne's birth is the fact that this bastard weighed 13 fucking pounds Whoa. when he was born on May 26, 1907. Randy's got him some competition here. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> 13, 13 pounds? Jeez. 13 pounds. And on the Apgar scale, remember the baby judgment scale that oh, we yeah. discussed yeah, on the, the old <laughs> dickhead Andrew Tate yeah, said Andrew. he was a 9.5? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, the one where Tate said he uh, almost scored a perfect 10. Well, the 13-pound baby's got to score pretty high. I mean, that's just impressive. Yes. Wow. God, yeah. poor Mary, man. That, oh, dude. That yeah. was, was that she before had a little lamb. <laughs> she did have a little lamb. <laughs> Is that before C-sections or? Uh, they were doing C-sections for a while, but I'm sure this was Whew. not. Uh, and surprise, surprise, John Wayne wasn't born John Wayne. 
Rather, the name attached to this 13-pound Thanksgiving turkey of a baby was Victor the Vaginal Annihilator. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. That was his wrestling name. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. It was Marion Robert Morrison. Marion. That's Marion. I thought it was uh, Francis. No. 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 Marion. Marion Robert Morrison. Named after his mom? I don't know. Mary? Marion? Maybe. Not long after his birth in Iowa, his family packs up and moves out to Palmdale, California. Big shout out to my peeps in Antelope Valley, Palmdale and Lancaster, baby. An area where I spent a number of years of my childhood as well, where my father graduated high school. And the surefire winner of the award of being the least L.A. feeling stretch of Los Angeles County. (laughs) Sure, it's better than Bakersfield, but not by much. <laughs> Young Marion avoids the fate assigned to so many Palmdale residents of becoming a meth cook when his family moves to Glendale. So good All for right. him. Yeah. Uh, his childhood is fairly normal in Glendale. He goes to school. He gets a dog, a giant Airedale Terrier, one of those giant bearded dogs that looks like if Kevin Durant were cast in a reboot of Disney's The Shaggy <laughs> Dog. <laughs> I'm actually getting a pretty good visual of that right now. Yeah. Yeah, those Airedales, they're, uh, uh, man, they're a tough breed. In Glendale, Arizona, correct? No, no, Glendale, California. Glendale, California. Yeah, it's Los Angeles. He moves further further in. Okay. He names the dog Duke, and he walks this dog everywhere. And eventually, according to legend, a local fireman starts calling little Marion Little Duke after his dog's name. Wait a minute. This is like Indiana Jones. He's like, Indy? The dog's name was Indy. Yeah, that was a good uh, Sean Connery right there. Oh, thank Not you. Bad, yeah. I yeah. don't remember that part of the movie. Yeah. Indy, the dog deserves a slap. <laughs> That's oh, anytime I hear, I just have I have to drop that line for our boy. Yeah, which uh, maybe it was a different time, but I'm just thinking it's sort of strange for a fireman to pay a bunch of attention to some random kid that's walking down the street. I'm sure it was entirely innocent. <laughs> Whatever. Times were a little Times bit more were different yeah, back yeah. then. Or were they? <laughs> <laughs> that stuff just got swept under the rug. Yeah. <laughs> Don't tell anybody about that. If uh, anybody says anything, it happened to Duke, the dog, it's, it's, not to you. Instead of a van with free candy, it's like a horse with yeah. free with free candy. <laughs> it's like a wagon. Of, yeah, a wagon. Got a wagon straight up, man. Yeah, it's funny. I saw a guy in line uh, at the store the other day. He was like 50 years old, like this 50-year-old black dude, and his shirt said... Show me the candy first, then I get in the van. I'm not stupid. (laughs) Uh, Anyways, that's not important. What is important is that Marion thinks his name Marion is a bit wienerish, you know? Not unlike another previous show subject, Marion Pat Robertson of the 700 Club fame, who also thought his name made him sound like a straight bitch. Because it does. Yeah, Marion's not a very tough street name. No. Marion is also Suge Knight's first name. Damn, that's like literally uh, three people out of all of our shows with the name Marion, and I've never met an actual Marion in my real life, probably because they don't go by their real name. Yeah, the only no. one that I ever remember is a guy named Marion Barber, and he played running back for the Cowboys. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but if your name's Marion, yeah, I could see switching it to John Wayne or Suge. Yeah, and you I know. think he actually recently passed away. I'm sorry to say that. Was, yeah. Yeah, it was bad. R.I.P. Marion. Yep. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Sorry about <laughs> that. Yeah, no, it's okay. No, Marion, like yeah. you said, you don't hear it too often. No, but yeah, we we're now just have three. It. Yeah, a lot of assholes named Marion apparently. <laughs> and shocker, none of them go by Marion. So. No, no. Uh, anyway, the firefighter's nickname is preferable, and little Marion adopts it. Smart. That's just smart. He goes to Wilson Middle School. He works at an ice cream shop. Uh, the owner apparently did side work putting shoes on horses for movie studios which is like an interesting uh, side hustle for sure, but whatever. At this time, when like every movie made was a Western, he probably made pretty good money. Yeah, absolutely. Every fucking movie they used to make was like either a Bible story or Westerns. Yeah, lots of horses. Yeah. He goes to Glendale High School and plays football on their league championship team. After high school, he decides that the best path forward is to join the U.S. Naval Academy, but just like our boy L. Ron Hubbard, another AHC alumni, he gets shut down. His grades just weren't good enough. He just wasn't that bright. Hey, well, going the to acting. didn't make the cut. <laughs> That's right. That's the <laughs> first time. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, so he decides, you know, it's true. I couldn't pour piss out of a boot with instructions on the heel, but I got something else going for me. I'm fucking huge. <laughs> and it's true. <laughs> 
In the 1920s, at a time when most men weren't tall enough to ride modern roller coasters, <laughs> <laughs> Mary and Duke Morrison clocked in at a towering 6'4 and a half. Whoa. Oh, wow. Was he really that tall? Yes. Holy shit. Yeah. I didn't wow. know that. At that height, Duke allegedly enjoyed intimidating rivals by simply bumping into them and brushing his bulging Midwestern crotch across their upper lip. <laughs> I'll show you the Duke. Yeah, man, we had but one of our best friends. He was six four, and he yeah, he just would lean on you. Mm-hmm. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. And we've got another real good buddy. He's six foot fucking eight, and he's a just different ball game. Towers over yeah. you. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. So since he's dumber than a box of hair and practically a giant, he does the smartest thing possible. He gets a scholarship at the University of Southern California to play football and majors in, let's see here, pre law. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, that's real. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, I was waiting for that. No. Yeah, right? Me too. Yeah. You weren't going to fool me again. No. I did, though. Gosh, at that time, it was real. <laughs> me Pretty and Randy sitting over here. We're like, uh, I, don't, I don't know what to believe anymore. He's done this before. <laughs> I do it every show. No offense, USC, by the way. I'm not trashing you. I'm a fan. It's I okay. thought he was going to be a manager of the custodial arts or something no, like that. No, he went pretty long. Uh, and this works out great for a little while. He joined Sigma Chi fraternity. In fact, there was a fun rumor that got bandied about for decades that involved a young uh, John Wayne. As the story goes, according to the book Hollywood Babylon, after one game, the biggest silent film star of the time, Clara Bow decides that she could handle the whole starting USC football team in the biblical sense. A full-on Trojan gangbang. This is almost undoubtedly not true. In fact, it had to be removed from later editions of Hollywood Babylon, but, you know, it's a pretty fucking wild story, dude. Wow. And the Duke's like, I'll bring the Trojan horse. Yeah. <laughs> like, she, she said, that's the tall one back there. He goes first. So, I can- <laughs> <laughs> so everybody else feels like yeah, nothing. <laughs> You're all going to get my sloppy seconds. We've been asked by our fans, guys, we want more. And just like a genie in a bottle, your wish is our command. Our Patreon page is now live. Find us on Patreon at AHC Podcast to get access to our all-new Conspiracy Court episodes, get a shout-out on one of our Asshole Court episodes, voting power on future episodes, stickers, swag, and a whole lot more. Go to Patreon.com and search for AHC Podcast to get your fix today. And now, back to your regularly scheduled shenanigans. Anyway, things are looking promising for the gargantuan athlete until at some point, young Duke decides to hit the surf, catches a wave, and gets pile-driven into the sand, snapping his collarbone. Mm. There's an absolutely vicious shore break out there in Newport Beach called the Wedge that I could totally imagine taking a young John Wayne and grinding him into the sand like a cigarette butt. <laughs> so I did. Over and over <laughs> and over again just to amuse myself. This wave is a fucking mutant and it breaks. It'll get literally a 20 foot and break directly onto the sand. Damn. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I don't think that was the one he did, but I, I'm hoping that would be cool. That's the mental image we want to paint. Exactly. So. Now, for those that aren't sports fans or medically inclined, a broken collarbone isn't something you want as a football player or a living human being for that matter. It is, in medical terms, a big owie. And Duke can't bring himself to tell his coach, Howard Jones, how he sustained the injury, getting absolutely powerbombed by the wedge. Unable to play, he loses his athletic scholarship, and out of money, he drops out of USC. Perhaps feeling somewhat guilty for the poor fate of young Morrison, his coach, Howard Jones, hooks him up with some friends, Western film star Tom Mix and famous director John Ford. They give the college dropout odd jobs as a prop boy and a movie extra. After some time, he gets an on-screen credit as Duke Morrison in the movie Words and Music, which is a movie about math and science, I'm guessing. All right. <laughs> Words and music? <laughs> when, uh, when you talked about breaking the collarbone, you were with me the night mm-hmm. I popped the ligaments in my shoulder that hold my collarbone in place. It was a uh, work softball game. Playing shortstop, went back to make a phenomenal catch. It was a great catch. It was I a will great give you catch, that. And I went to roll. At, you know, it's kind of a dive, and I had to roll at the last minute. I didn't quite get all the way tucked, and I landed square on my shoulder. Yeah. And my shorts came down below my ass, and 
I stood up and the girl in left field, thank God she's actually one of my wife's best friends, saw my ass just out of my shorts. I had to pull them up with my other hand. Oh, you were amped. You were like, oh, God, a motherfucker like, <laughs> up in the air. Yep. We couldn't even drop the hand and from then, there. Oh, dude, I got in the dugout. Mikey looks at me and goes, are you all right? And I was sweating profusely. And my <laughs> no, shoulders I... were about a seven-inch difference between the left one and the right yeah. one. And I was like, uh-uh. Yeah. You ever leave a, a glass of iced tea out on the counter in the summertime? And it's just beating up. <laughs> it literally was like that. And I was like, yo, we like you, we got to go. And you were like, nah, I can get through it, dude. <laughs> and then it was, I mean, I think you lasted about 30 seconds of trying to mentally tell yourself you could get through the rest of the game. And you're like, all right, we got to fucking go, dude. And then we got in the car and hit every speed bump on the way out. <laughs> As he yep. grimaced in pain. Oh, he's miserable. You didn't do anything to your collarbone when we went uh, skiing that one time? That was whiplash. Frontal whiplash. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was tons of fun, too. Yeah, this happened when the shoulder was when I was like 25. The whiplash was when I was like 40. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different ballgame. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, so he, like, so he's in the movie Words and Music. Uh, and he actually got billed twice, once as Pete Donahue and once as prop assistant in the art department. Nice. Hey, yeah. two paychecks. Yeah, exactly. The movie isn't a big hit, however, and Duke Morrison continues his random gigs as an extra and furniture mover. Uh, that is until the following year when director Raoul Walsh sees the strapping young lad moving a couch or some shit and decides to cast him as a lead in his upcoming movie, The Big Trail. He's all, mm-hmm, that big-ass dude moving that couch should carry the entirety of my next movie. <laughs> <laughs> but Walsh is like, your name is a bit, um, how do you say, ungood. And Duke was like, well, Duke Morrison isn't my real name. It's actually Marion Morrison. And Walsh was like, sweet Jesus, boy. That's like a million times worse. That's not the name of a tough cowboy. That's the name of one of the prostitutes a tough cowboy bangs, you know? Morrison was like, oh, dude, it's true. Can you please help me? So Walsh got together with Fox Studios uh, chief Winfield Sheehan and was like, let's think of a good, tough name for this young star. I was thinking maybe Anthony Walsh, you know, like the Revolutionary War general, Mad Anthony Walsh. But Winfield Sheehan is like, nah, that's way too Italian. He really did say that. Oh, <laughs> that's man. real, yeah. The, the Tony Walsh, no. Yes, dude. Walsh uh, thought a little bit more and was like, well, you like the Wayne part, right? So what about, I don't know, fucking John, John Wayne. Sheehan is like, fuck yeah, John Wayne it is. Now go tell that big dumb hunk what his new name is. <laughs> Your new name is Dennis. <laughs> yeah, dude. All of that's true. John Wayne's name was decided for him without him even being in the room. Wow. Yeah. But he doesn't mind because the big trail is a monster hit. I'm kidding. It bombs because the format it's shot in widescreen isn't compatible with most of the movie house screens of the time. Oh. And yeah, they weren't Who willing that up. Well, they Jesus Christ, <laughs> they That's... weren't willing to pay to upgrade their screen technology due to the Great Depression. Uh... So most of these movie houses were just like, we can't even show this shit, dude. There was a lot of that, that happened recently when a lot of the theaters went digital, mm -hmm. but a lot of the theaters were staying reel to reel. Yeah. But all they were, all the studio houses were sending out were digital format. So a lot of movie theaters had to upgrade, upgrade. whether yeah. or not they wanted to. Yeah, I mean, it would later be reconsidered, however, and eventually the United States Library of Congress deemed it, quote, culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant, and selected it for preservation in the National Film Registry, owing a lot to it being a pioneer in the uh, uh, adoption of the 70 millimeter widescreen. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of that's just like what cameras also you, yep. you record with. That's right. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know. Regardless of the initial flop, the name stuck, and the newly monikered John Wayne spent the rest of the decade grinding out shitty roles in shitty second-rate westerns. Movies like Ride em Cowboy, and That's My Boy, and Pals of the Saddle, and Randy Rides Alone, and its sequel, Randy Rides Bruce. <laughs> I was going to say, these all sound like something you might find on Pornhub. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. what I was thinking. And, and let's, Randy does Bruce? <laughs> Randy rides Bruce. Uh, no. <laughs> no. Four of those, four of those are real John Wayne movies. One is not. You look it up. Randy rides alone. Randy it? rides alone, and the sequel, Randy rides, rides Bruce. Bruce. <laughs> 
Please uh, let it be Randy Rides Alone. Yeah. It's the fake one. Yeah. While finding his acting approach, uh, John Wayne modeled himself after uh, other contemporary Western stars he admired. Guys like Paul Fix and Yakima Canut and Harry Carey Jr. Not that Harry Carey. Uh, you know. If the moon were cheese, would you <laughs> eat it? <laughs> the pay isn't great, but it's enough to get uh, by while he waits for that next shot at a blockbuster. And spoiler alert, that blockbuster does finally come. In 1939, legendary director John Ford cast Wayne as Ringo Kidd in the movie Stagecoach. That movie is a huge hit, and John Ford explains not only why he cast Wayne, but why he'd be a huge star, saying that John Wayne, quote, will be the biggest star ever because he is the perfect everyman. And Ford is pretty spot on because John Wayne quickly becomes the biggest star, at least in terms of Westerns, that America had ever seen up to that point. Really ever. And like, you know, movies were becoming more and more of a popular thing around this time too, right? Like theaters were starting to get more widespread. Like just movies in general were yeah. easier to be seen by more people. Yeah. I mean, they got really big in the 20s and 30s mm -hmm. and 40s and stuff yeah. like that. And like the Western was like the de facto yeah. like genre. And yeah. so for him to be, you know, to, to become like this huge Western star, it was it was a big deal, man. Yeah. He's the Tom Cruise of his time, almost, yeah. in a sense. Unfortunately for the Duke, the timing of his rocket launch to fame is a bit unfortunate, because by the time he's becoming an A-lister, the world is plunged into war. And only a couple years after the debut of Stagecoach, the U.S. would be thrust into it all with the attack on Pearl Harbor. And what is a manly, rough-and-tumble giant like John Wayne to do? A man so synonymous with the masculine ideal of an American when his country is attacked. I dodge the draft is what I do. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yep. You got a 3A draft deferment, of course. Now, to be fair, the 3A deferment is reserved for men with children, of which they are the sole supporter. And I've addressed draft dodging before. Like, I don't fault anyone for dodging the draft in a war like Vietnam or any of the other wars in which the actual threat to the United States was vague or entirely non-existent. And there are plenty to choose from. But World War II was a different ball game. Yeah. It was a legitimate existential threat to the nation and like U.S. citizens. And there's, I mean, everybody was like volunteering to go to that. Like it was yeah. a sense of duty that you like owed to yeah. your country to do. Yeah. You, know. you got fucking attacked, dude. You, it, it was, yeah. Like I said, I mean, I don't know what I would do because I'm not in that situation. But I, that's a war. I'd be like, okay, I'm, I'm down. I'll, I'll go and maybe get fucking murked. <laughs> yeah. But it was also a different America back then too, a different mindset, you know, like yeah. you were proud of your country and you wanted to go do anything that you could to like save it. Well, yeah. I mean, I feel, you know, when 9/11 happened, people signed up for Afghanistan real quick and oh, yeah. it made sense. Of course. Um, yeah, John Wayne though <clears throat> would apparently tell people at times that his draft deferment had to do with an old football injury, but obviously records show that that was not the case. And sure, like a lot of people are probably thinking like he's a huge actor and famous that's what they all did. But that's not true either. No. World War II was definitely a unique scenario. And there were a number of very famous actors who indeed go out there and put themselves in the shit, so to speak. Wasn't there also a lot of baseball players? I was that... just about to say, Joe DiMaggio was like mm -hmm. a fucking fighter pilot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And that's kind of like the point of, um, what was the Tom Hanks movie with all the girls playing baseball? Oh, yeah, yeah. A League, League of, of Their, their own. own. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for instance, <clears throat> Jimmy Stewart. You know, the dude from It's a Wonderful Life? Well, he fucking flew multiple combat missions over Germany and Nazi-occupied Europe, eventually rising to the rank of Brigadier General after the war was over. Wow. And Clark Gable, Mr. Frankly, My Dear, I Don't Give a Damn himself, flew numerous missions as a combat gunner and would earn both the Air Medal and the Distinguished Flying Cross for his sorties over Europe. These dudes were fucking A-list stars doing this at the peak of their fame. I mean... Imagine Brad Pitt flying a fucking F-22 in a NATO sortie over Kaliningrad in World War III and dodging anti-aircraft fire, because that would be about the equivalent. Wow. Yeah. It's different times. Dude, I literally yeah. had a visual with fucking Danger Zone playing. Yeah. Of, yeah, that exact like scene playing out in a movie. Tom yeah. Cruise flying out and yeah. dropping missiles. Highway <laughs> to the Danger Zone. I know how to fly this thing. <laughs> And by the way, Clark Gable definitely had a kid as he was taking flack over Germany. No. This is not a good look for ultra macho John Wayne. I got to keep people coming to the theater so they can find out about the war. But also, you know, who else is going to bring them in if everybody's yeah. across the pond? Yeah, you got to, you know, 
fill that actor role. There's only so <laughs> many of them. Uh, to be fair, Wayne did attempt to join the OSS, the precursor to the CIA, and there was a lot of pressure from the movie studios to keep him from going. But regardless, his only interaction with the war in any real sense was touring U.S. bases and hospitals in the South Pacific for three months in 1943 and 1944. And it all seemed to weigh on him. According to a biography on the Duke by Scott Amon, John Wayne, the life, the legend, the self-styled super patriot felt shame and guilt for dodging military service during World War II. And his last wife would later say this about his guilt over skipping out on the war. Quote, he would become a super patriot for the rest of his life trying to atone for staying home. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Which leads us... At least he kind of is self-aware about it, right? Like, yeah. you know, others may just try to sell that story about the football injury and stick to it and... You know, for him to kind of come full circle and be like, I really wish I would have gone to serve my country. Well, he never said it publicly, but in private conversations, this was also like he said it to his his, his last wife. But, you know, most people just got the sense. Sure. Yeah. And also, like I said, we'll see sort of how this changes his character here because this leads us into the era of John Wayne that is likely the most controversial. The late 40s and 1950s certainly offered the Duke an opportunity to prove that he was an American warrior. But this time, it wouldn't be engaging in a hot war, fighting in the air or the fields of Europe or elsewhere to protect the homeland. No. His own war consisted of outing potential American communists and constantly espousing the values of the American way of life. Trademark. Between 1949 and 1953, he presided over the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals which is the product of his time, sure, but is still pretty wild thinking of something like that existing now. What was the name again? Read that out. Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals. Like I'm just saying, it sounds like a right-wing acting group. Uh, yeah, I mean, and it was. Okay. It really All was, right. yeah. And you had, like I said, this, this alliance was responsible for the creation of the Hollywood Blacklist, which attempted to ruin the careers of people like Dalton Trumbo, screenwriter for iconic films like Spartacus and Roman Holiday. And in the 50s, at the peak of the Red Scare, when a lot of folks thought communists were, like, hiding in their crawl spaces and shit, John Wayne becomes a member of the John Birch Society. Now, I've touched on the John Birch Society in previous episodes, but let me elaborate a little bit more on it here. In the 1950s, when the Cold War was in full swing and there was a legitimate concern amongst uh, most Americans about the Soviet communist threat, the John Birch Society was taking it to a level that was absolutely absurd. Think of them like the original QAnon, a group of paranoid, conspiracy-driven people that saw threats any and everywhere. It was founded by a wealthy candy manufacturer named Robert Welch. I mean, imagine Willy Wonka played by Alex fucking Jones, and you know, you're getting close to the founder of the John Burke Society. Anyway, he, uh, that's this is Robert Welch, and his little society accused most of the U.S. government of being under secret communist control going so far as to claim that none other than super-duper war hero and fairly decent president Dwight D. Eisenhower of being nothing more than a Soviet agent hell-bent on the destruction of the American way of life. Trademark. Wow. In his book, The Politician, the head honcho of the John Birch Society, Candyman Robert Welch, called Eisenhower a, quote, dedicated, conscious agent of the communist conspiracy, end quote. He claimed that, 50 to 70% of the entire U.S. government was communist controlled and that the push for civil rights had been, quote, fomented also entirely by the communists. Yes, really. Because who else could be behind the push to end segregation but the evil commies? I'm trying to wrap my head around all that. Yeah. This is insane. Yeah. The like, John Birch Society is fucking nuts, bro. Why Eisenhower? Like, why do they think he was a communist? I don't know. What? I don't know. Like, this, the, like I try to ask these simple questions yeah. sometimes to shit like this, and yeah. you know, there's no real simple answer, and I don't know. They didn't feel like he was right-wing enough. He was a Republican president, and they were like, nope, no, sir. That's not good enough for us. You know what I mean? Like yeah, you're you're war in, war hero Republican president. Yeah, yeah, your interstate system is entirely communist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Eisenhower uh, got the interstates paved. Yeah, not a bad president. No. I mean, you know, it's whatever. I mean, there's there's issues there. I mean, you know, the Korean War, but it was all part of the time. Um. Anyways, thankfully, the cooler heads of the GOP of the era succeeded in ousting them for their sheer nuttiness. But John Wayne was down with the John Birch Society. So, well. 
I should say that he finally quit the John Birch Society when they freaked out about fluoridating water and called that a communist plot, claiming that dentures at 30 was a part of the American way of life. Trademark. I'm joking about the dentures part. <laughs> it's just... Uh, yeah. It's just, yeah, the, like I was reading something the other day and they were like, uh, it was on uh, the subreddit Ask Historians. And this guy was like, my grandmother had dentures by the time she was 35 and my great grandmother uh, around 30. What the fuck was going on? And the uh, Ask Historians is, is highly curated. Like you will get kicked out of there if you're not citing sources and stuff like uh-huh. that. And this guy was like, that's when they started fluoridating water. And it was just like general dental care got better. Yeah, you know, makes sense. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Yes, uh, I'm sure we're gonna get uh, some nasty crap about fluoride in the water being bad, but hey, whatever. <laughs> so good for John Wayne, I guess. You know, Ike Eisenhower is a secret Soviet agent. Why not? But saying that fluoridating water is communist, well, that's where I draw the line, Pilgrim. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, though, this sort of reminded me that there has always been a dedicated group of paranoid weirdos that pervade American political culture. QAnon and Alex Jones and his gay frogs are nothing new. Replace civil rights being a communist plot with trans rights being a globalist plot, and it's all the same hamburger. But a segment of the population eats that shit up. It's why we got an angry Instagram novel from some dude last week for talking bad about his hero Alex Jones. That's right. Oh yeah, Yeah. we did. So think, in modern times, that could be John Wayne Instagram hating us for ripping on his candyman Robert Welch which admittedly would be a lot cooler and funnier. Now, I should pause here to say that there is an unverified rumor that Joseph Stalin tried to have John Wayne killed in the 50s Oh man! because he considered his anti-communist rhetoric a threat to the Soviet Union. And if that were true, well, I mean, who couldn't blame old Duke for being a bit paranoid about the commies, you know? But to be perfectly honest, like, I just don't believe it for a minute. It's a cool rumor. Yeah. yeah. I like the idea. You kind of hope rumor. it's true, but... Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, everything I read was entirely hearsay that was crammed into a book that was desperately trying to find new information on John Wayne after his death, a.k.a. trying to be marketable and get some press. Yeah. The author heard it from a guy who heard it from Orson Welles at a dinner in the early 80s or some shit. I don't know. I mean, supposing that is true, Orson Welles in the 80s was drunk like 110% of the time. So I'm sorry. Not exactly the most credible source. Correct. Plus the idea that Joseph Stalin would be like, John Wayne is a threat to the Soviet Union. KGB, execute. And then for John Wayne to dodge a concerted KGB assassination attempt. I got out of that one. (laughs) It's a little dicey. Yeah, but there is a non-zero chance that it's true. The Cold War was weird as hell in a lot of ways, so, you know, maybe. Yep. How many times have you listened to an episode and thought, man, I wish they would have said this? Well, now with our interactive social media pages, you can. Let us know what you think about our show subjects and give us your scores. We'd love to hear from you. Well, most of you at least. Let's dive back into the action. Anyway, none of this hurts his career at all. John Wayne just keeps plugging away, making monster movies, being an A-lister. But as the directors who had helped shape his movie persona, guys like John Ford and Howard Hawks, passed away, Wayne became much more involved in the process of his movies and took to micromanaging his films, overwhelming his directors and demanding that his parts be modeled on the man he had become. And the man he had become wasn't exactly a pretty sight by this point. With multiple divorces in the bag, one which included a wife who had tried to shoot him in 1947, a noted penchant for drinking heavily, mostly wild turkey, a toupee, and a borderline obsessive need to prove his love for his country, John Wayne was indeed a surly individual at this point. I'm an American. I love America. God damn it. Yeah. He he didn't want to give up the hair, so he rocked the toupee. He did, and uh, to his credit... (laughs) Jerk off. He he actually... (laughs) Points deducted. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, he actually had some fairly funny comments about his toupee, because at a certain point, it was just obvious he had a toupee. And somebody, uh, he had to go to Harvard at some point and gave a speech. And they were like, is that your real hair? And he said, uh, it's real. It's not my hair, but it's real hair. <laughs> it's like uh, Christian Bale and American Hustle. That comb over was horrible. Comb overs are the worst thing ever. Yeah. It could never be good, man. I mean, honestly, a toupee is, is, is better than a comb over. Really, just, just go with the ball thing. 
But back then, I mean, it, you had to have hair. Like only like Yul Brenner was able to get away with being bald, and it was Teddy Savalas. Cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't even know who that is. Te- well, Telly Savalas. Yeah, Telly Savalas yeah, was Kojak. Okay, yeah. it was a show. <laughs> <laughs> That's dating us a little bit. Well, it is, but because that, that show was on when I was like literally four years old or whatever. But I just figured my dad used to watch Kojak. Oh yeah, my mom liked yeah. it. Jake and the Fat Man, Kojak. I just figured Blockbuster Buddy would be. On the Kojak. Now, like I said, we started watching the movies like mid-80s and you know, Teddy Savalas, not Telly. It's okay. Telly. Missed, missed a little bit there. It's it happens. Right. I mean, Teddy's a way more normal name than Telly. Telly, yeah. yeah. Although he is still a bankable star, he was increasingly difficult to work with. According to Sam Osteen's memoir, Cut to the Chase, studio directors knew to shoot Wayne's scenes before noon because <laughs> by afternoon he was, quote, a mean drunk. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And he hated the left and complained about them pushing their ideals into the movies while he himself did exactly the same thing with pictures like his passion project, The Alamo, a 10-year effort that summed up his belief in the American character, and of course, The Green Berets, an unabashedly pro-military, pro-Vietnam war that had the luck of dropping around the same time as the NVA Tet Offensive, which pretty much doomed the U.S. effort in Vietnam, in terms of public opinion at least. Yeah, Yeah, right. The Green Berets, while profitable, was not a critical success. One critic wrote, quote, John Wayne, bless him, has convinced me he's more of a patriot than he thinks. His movie, The Green Berets, will without question unite the Doves and the Hawks. It is the first film about Vietnam about which there can be no controversy, no dispute, no argument. Nobody who sees it will find a single reason to disagree that it is the phoniest, most laughable war picture in years. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. If he's going all like gung ho, right as the Tet Offensive is going oh. off, like yeah, he was he played a Green Beret and helping out like the South Vietnamese. It was a movie that was like the Vietnam War is dope as fuck, y'all. Get on board. <laughs> yeah. In 1968, man, as damn. the Tet Offensive is everybody's like, oh shit, what are we doing over there? Like this shit's no joke, man. Womp womp womp. Yeah. Womp. By the time that the Green Berets is playing across screens nationwide. John Wayne is as famous for his political views as he is for being an actor. Now, a lot of us don't remember this, but if you were alive at the time as an adult or whatever, he really was notorious for being like a hardcore right winger type of dude that all sort of disappeared after he passed away. And then the next generation was just like, oh, that's the cowboy guy. Right. Yeah. In 1971, he gives a long interview to the then cultural juggernaut Playboy magazine. It is illuminating. Here's some interesting tidbits. About Midnight Cowboy, the Dustin Hoffman and John Voight movie, which had been a big hit around that time, the Duke said it was, quote, a story about two fags. Oh, wow. Man. Yeah, that's him. That's not me. <laughs> <laughs> I've watched, I know that, again, that's one of the uh, the old classic movies where I was like, okay, I got to watch it, I guess. You know, like The Graduate and like Midnight Cowboy. And I was just like, yeah, I don't get it. I don't, <laughs> I don't understand why everybody liked this movie that much. But I, I you know, I, I, I was not alive in 1969 when it yeah. came out or 1970. Sure. Uh, on the civil rights movement, uh, John Wayne says, quote, with a lot of blacks, there's quite a bit of resentment along with their descent and possibly rightfully so. But we can't all of a sudden get down on our knees and turn everything over to the leadership of the blacks. I believe in white supremacy until the blacks are educated to the point of responsibility. End quote. Wow. wow. He dropped the word white supremacy. white supremacy. He did. I believe in white supremacy. Wow. Yeah. But I mean, to be fair, until the blacks get their stuff in order. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it's just, yeah, you're like, okay. All right. Wow. Uh, and then the kicker on the fate of the Native Americans, the people so often on the other end of his rifle and the seemingly infinite Westerns he starred in, John Wayne says, quote, I don't feel we did wrong in taking this great country away from the Indians. Our so-called stealing of this country from them was just a matter of survival. There were great numbers of people who needed new land, and the Indians were selfishly trying to keep it for themselves. Oh. oh. End quote. <laughs> Interesting wow. take on that whole situation. <laughs> yes. Yes. Let me just read that last part again. The Indians were selfishly trying to keep it for themselves. That's right. They wanted too much. They did. Just the place where they had been living for a long time. Long time. Assholes. Buddy's over here scribbling. (laughs) Buddy's making notes. (laughs) Now, I understand that these were different times, and to view his quotes uh, like through that prism, 
But the other part of me thinks this is just 50 years ago, only a decade before I was born. And it's fucking crazy that someone that's a major star is like, I am for white supremacy. The Indians were selfishly trying to keep their land. I mean, like to parallel it, I mean, like what if Clint Eastwood started like going off the deep end and saying stuff like that? Like he did when he talked to that chair during the Republican convention in 2012. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not fair. He would. That was just an oddball thing where you're like, wow, he's he may have dementia at this point. Yeah, it's not the same, but still crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Because, I mean, like, Clint Eastwood is probably a good parallel. It's He's just fucking, like, 90 years old. Yeah. yeah. And he looks it. But yeah. he's like 90 for, like, 30 years. And it's tough because Clint Eastwood has made some really great films, man. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying. Like, he he was a big star also in that kind of Western, you know, uh, genre. Genre. Yeah. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, I mean, he's still... He's, you still he, he's dropping some really good movies that from the director standpoint yeah uh, at least did for you know oh yeah yeah i mean yeah, it's he's 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 an american legend right he's you know, he'll go down in movie I'm history old. yeah he's old he plays this <laughs> yeah he plays the 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 uh get off my lawn guy very well yeah he yeah. does but like i said yeah this this stuff is crazy it was literally 10 years before i was born and it's just wild. It's like when you talk to like a really old person and they're just like casually racist yeah. as fuck yeah I had this uh, one time where, like I said, my my great-grandmother is, like, full Native American or whatever, and uh, my stepdad's mom, my stepdad is a great person, his mom uh, was uh, not the nicest. She was, um, like, 90-something or whatever, and she actually called my mom a (laughs) half-breed, and I was like, I was like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) First of all, uh, quarter-breed would be more accurate, and uh, second of all, like, I didn't know that term got used for the past it was like wild. Openly. Yeah, yeah. My mom was just like kind of rolled with it, you know? <laughs> uh, good they time. say stuff, you know, you just, they've earned it at this right, they do, at this age. Which was uh, watching Seinfeld the other day, and this is a great uh, uh, Randy story, is uh, when they went and they went to go, uh, they started volunteering to help old people at their homes. Oh, yeah. And the one guy, they come in there and it, uh, the guy is just racist as fuck. And he was like, she's in there stealing all my stuff, doing her voodoo magic. <laughs> 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 oh, man. They're in here trying to rob me. <laughs> you know, that guy won a, um, an Emmy for that role. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I started looking it up because I was like, how that episode was probably made in like 92 or something like that. And I was like, that guy was like a hundred then. So I immediately looked him up on Wikipedia and I was like, Oh, he did a great job. Yeah. He won an Emmy for it. Cause it was hilarious, dude. In 1973 at the Academy Awards, Marlon Brando is awarded the best actor Oscar for his portrayal of Vito Corleone in the Godfather. But instead of collecting a statue, Marlon Brando refused it and sent up a proxy. She was native American and her name was little feather. Brando wanted her to go to the podium and speak out on the film industry's treatment of Native Americans. The protest got a mixed reaction, which, you know, whatever. It's 1973. I'm not too surprised. But Little Feather recalled the most memorable reaction years later. She said, quote, I remember the faces in the crowd. I heard a disturbance from behind me as I was speaking up at the podium. I found out that John Wayne had been restrained by six security men from assaulting me while I was on that stage. Wow. Wow. Not on my dime. <laughs> I just got done watching the show on Paramount, The Offer. Yeah. And uh, I remember that exact scene when he won and she went up to uh, give the speech. Nothing was mentioned about that. No, I mean, yeah. yeah. What do you, I mean, John Wayne has nothing to do with The Godfather. Nah, nah. I, they should have put it in there because yeah, that would be a cool little tidbit. Yeah. Only a few years later, in 1979, at the age of 72, the Duke would succumb to stomach cancer. Now, this isn't all that uncommon, I suppose. People in their 70s with cancer happens. But there is one thing that is a little different for John Wayne and other septuagenarians expiring from cancer. And that has to do with a film that he shot back in 1954. It was called The Conqueror. Apparently, some casting director in Hollywood decided it would be hilarious to play a prank on the world and cast John fucking Wayne as Genghis fucking Khan. What? (laughs) Really? (laughs) And yes... The movie and John Wayne's performance was so fucking awful that it would be reasonable to assume that the sheer awfulness of the movie caused cancer, but that's not quite accurate. Side note, uh, even Wayne knew the movie was a total joke like himself, saying that the lesson he learned was, quote, not to make an ass of yourself trying to play parts you're not suited for. There you go. That's probably a good lesson to learn from that one. Yes. Anyway, the thing about this movie is that it was filmed in the deserts of Utah 
and in one particular place, Snow Canyon. Now, if you're a history fan, you'll probably remember that around this time, the U.S. government was having a fucking field day detonating nukes all across the deserts in the Southwest. People actually went and watched them for entertainment. You could see a mushroom cloud from Las Vegas from time to time, and people loved it, which seems dumb now and was also dumb then. <laughs> but whatever. These fuckers back then were huffing metric tons of lead for sport. So, you know, whatever. Radioactive fallout for everyone. Hooray! Oh, Woohoo! In Snow Canyon, there was enough fallout there that there was a famous moment in which the Duke and his two sons were chilling, and another dude started checking rocks with a Geiger counter, and it started crackling so loud that John Wayne assumed it was broken. There's actually a picture of this moment, which was like pretty weird to oh, look wow. at. Oh, yeah. wow. Huh. As it would turn out, both of his sons would later develop and beat cancer. And a shocking number of other people involved in the movie would deal with various cancers themselves. Oh, wow. Final stats, as of an article published in the early 80s on the Conqueror's Cancer Curse, of 220 cast and crew, 91 had contracted cancer and 46 of them died. Damn. Wow, that's like 25% of the people, or yeah. a little bit under. Yeah. No bombs were tested during the filming, but the article quoted Robert Pendleton, director of the Radiological Health at the University of Utah, saying, radioactivity from previous blasts probably lodged in Snow Canyon. That rate of cancer cases feels pretty high, so it is possible that the Duke eventually developed cancer as a result of uh, the most embarrassing role of his life. Damn. Wow. That's a bummer. That it's, sucks. It's possible. Yeah. I thought you were going to say it was like a, probably like alcohol-driven with all the whiskey he was drinking. So. Well, I was going to say it's also important to factor in something else, because at his worst, John Wayne was a six-pack-a-day smoker. Oh, wow. Six packs a day? Jesus. You heard me right. Six packs a day, although I've seen that he averaged four. So somebody did the math uh, I saw somewhere online, and they were like, that means that he pretty much smoked nonstop all day, and that between cigarettes there was like a three-minute break at most. That's like roughly like six cigarettes an hour all day long. That's 3.33 cigarettes per hour. Yeah, it's yeah, uh, all day long. It's so it was like they were saying like the average the average cigarette That's 80 80 four packs a day. Yeah, if you're at four packs a day something yeah. like that. They were saying the average cigarette is about 5 minutes or something like that. They divided the total minutes of the day that he was awake and they were like it was basically 8 minutes between cigarettes for the entirety of the time he woke up. Till the time he went to sleep. Jesus, that's like like when you hear your grandpa used to use one match a day. Yeah, that's what yeah, that's what his family was saying. They're like he literally lit a cigarette as soon as he woke up, and it just kept going throughout the entire day, man. Oh man, and call me crazy, but like that certainly wouldn't help your cancer situation. No, in fact, I'm uh, thinking playing in fallout dust and smoking four to six packs a day and drinking heavily and making it to seventy two. I mean, that's actually pretty he impressive. his coverage. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's stout. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's stout. In fact, I'd wager that if John Wayne had lived the lifestyle of, say, Dwayne the Rock Johnson, he'd likely uh, make it to, I don't know, like a thousand years old. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the Duke actually was diagnosed with lung cancer in 1965 and had a whole fucking lung and multiple ribs removed, which... Also, wow, surviving yeah. lung cancer in 1965. I could suck my own dick after that. <laughs> <laughs> like Marilyn Manson. Right. Take that, Marilyn Manson. Yeah. Yeah, he actually, uh, John Wayne is the guy that popularized the phrase, the big C, in regards to cancer. Really? Oh, yeah. wow. And he said that uh, when he was diagnosed with lung cancer, that he sat there and tried to be John Wayne. Yeah. Um, so but there man, is that's like looking at the x-ray and it's just like a big old like rectangle yeah. in your lungs. Yeah. Like, geez. That's, that's, that's my biggest fear on the entire world, man. Yep. I just I can't even deal with it. But yeah, there it is, fellas. John Wayne, cowboy actor, early uh, 20th century giant, an actual giant. <laughs> he was huge uh, and borderline fascist. Final scores, boys. Wow. Randy, what you got? Man, I learned a lot today for sure. The beginning part of the episode was very you know, what I expected of John Wayne, the end of the episode. And we've seen this happen so many times. When people get older, they start to kind of fall apart a little bit, come off their rocker, spouting crazy shit. Mm -hmm. Loose lips. Man, this guy was a racist for oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God almighty, the stuff he had to say about the Indians and, mm -hmm. man, just 
people in general, you could tell kind of where where he sat, which yep. is odd because Hollywood nowadays, like, there's no way you would be able to. No. Oh, he'd be canceled in five yeah, minutes. Make it. Well, if he said what he said. Of I was course. gonna say you honestly should be if you say shit yeah, like oh, I'm yeah. for white supremacy. Oh, hey, fuck you, man. All day. No, all day. That's, that's what I'm saying. But like. If you translate it to nowadays and you're like a hardcore right wing yeah. person in Hollywood, it's hard to, I don't know, sometimes I feel they get It's funny, blacklisted. John or, Voight is a hardcore uh, right winger or really? whatever, and uh, and then John Wayne called him a fag. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder how John Wayne, I mean, I wonder how John Voight feels about that because, yeah. So, you know, I had him pretty low to start off. I had him a 4.11, the lowest of all of the scores. Got to jump him up. Um, I am going to leave his final asshole score at a 5.88. Okay. 5.88 mm-hmm. for Randy on John Wayne. I'm not more of an asshole than Jake Paul. Pretty good John Wayne. <laughs> Buddy, what do you got? All right. So, uh, yeah, uh, like Randy was talking about, this was a little bit of an eye-opening show. It, it did kind of start off how I expected it, but, you know, gosh, 13 pounds uh, That's baby it. boy, man, he was a straight 10.0 on the Andrew Tate scale. That's right. And just, uh, man, I'm kind of at a loss here, man. Just like, I didn't realize like how big of a racist he was and how that did just kind of get swept under the rug. At least, uh, you know, I, I figured I would have heard about that a little bit more, especially for how revered this man is. Mm-hmm. I don't like all the white supremacist stuff. I don't like the draft dodging, especially from World War II. And also, Indians selfishly wanted to keep the land for themselves. Man, yeah, that's... that one was like, I was like, man, I, that was actually almost more shocking. I was like, just because a lot of people uh, were saying equivalent things about like civil rights stuff. But then I was like, and then he's like, also, let me tell you about, you're like, that's not even like a normal take. You're like, hell yeah, we took their shit and they were trying to keep it. <laughs> Those that's assholes. Cra- yeah. yeah, it's crazy that they were trying to keep their own land. Gosh, man, uh, I guess he's a big Christopher Columbus supporter. Oh, he would be if he's alive now. Yeah. And uh, yeah, man. So that was just, uh, you know, very surprising to hear from him. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to have to jump him up. I'm going to have to jump him up over the six point mark here because for people that have that much influence and will just sit there and still spout off that kind of stuff, that just doesn't sit right with me. He kind of reminds me a little bit of Mike Lindell, a little bit, just kind of spouting off lots of crazy shit. And who knows, maybe he was doing a little bit of cocaine, too. But for his reach, I think he has a little bit of a larger reach than Mike Lindell currently has. So um, I'm not going to put him as high as Nancy Grace at a 6.33, but I will put him at a 6.27. So 6.27 as a final asshole score. 6.27 for Buddy. Awesome. All right, Mike, you finish this up, buddy. Okay. So I, you know, like I said, we always try to keep it in context with the times and stuff like that. And it was, you know, there's a lot of people out there that were disturbed by the civil rights movement. And um, it's, that's insane to me. I feel, I feel like I would have supported the civil rights movement then. I don't yeah. know. I didn't live in that time and there's, there's no telling. It's easier to look back retrospectively and be like, yeah, dude. Um, But I, I feel like he was even above and beyond for people at that time that, Especially for someone as as big and uh, like Buddy said, like influential as he was, yeah. I don't like the sort of. I'm not gonna call him a fraud, but it is sort of crazy to play this like super masculine role and then totally bitch out on World War Two. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Where like, like I said, what's interesting too is that he did a movie uh, with Jimmy Stewart, with James Stewart, uh, the Who Shot Liberty Valance. What were those conversations like? Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is after World War Two, and like he had to be like. Yeah, I totally was gonna join, but like football injury and shit. You know what I'm My saying? My collarbone, you know. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy's like, yeah, well, we were fucking flying over Dresden. I just, yeah, we were just taking flack left and right. And and what were you doing? Uh just nursing that that football wound, man. It was, you know, writing up the script for the Conqueror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and also there was like an entire generation of people that like looked up to him as like the ideal masculine right. guy, yep. and would probably call Jimmy Stewart a bitch. <laughs> I'm saying like, oh, well, I'm Jimmy Stewart, little tall wiener guy yeah. or whatever. Uh, so, <laughs> so like my my disdain for him is like sort of reflected uh, by the people that an- annoy me. Right. You know what I'm it's saying? Fair. Does that make sense? Yep. It's tough because, like I said, we, we get into it every time. Uh, you know, I, it's tough to put him over Steven Seagal, who's a rapist. Uh, John Wayne didn't rape anybody. But but I feel like we're going to eventually change Steven Seagal's score. So I will put him 
at a uh I'm gonna put John Wayne at a at a six point six point two five. Right. Um he was uh the shit he said about uh everybody was shitty, uh a bit of a wank, you know. He could be a charming person and had certainly had a lot of funny interviews and stuff like that. But uh, at his core, he was just kind of a bitter ass old man, and that sucks. Yeah. All right. With a 5.88 from Randy, a 6.27 from Buddy, and a 6.25 from Mikey, John Wayne's final asshole score is a 6.13. All right. 6.13 puts him in interesting company. Mike Lindell and Kanye West are both 6.1. Who are what? both white supremacists now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, oddly enough, we get a lot of, yeah, they're falling together here. Yeah. So 6.1 for Lindell and West. John Wayne's at 6.13. And then Jake Paul is at 6.2. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. So right around there. Awesome. We hope you guys enjoyed this episode of Asshole Court. As always, we appreciate the shout outs and the interaction with you guys. I know a lot of our show uh, recommendations come from you guys. We will give you a shout out on the show. But more importantly, we want to hear from you and get five-star reviews uh, wherever you're listening to us. Those really do mean a lot. Not only to us, we love to read your comments, but hell, I'll be honest, it helps our analytics. So uh, shoot us a five-star review. Tell us what you think. As we get near the holidays, remember to tell your friends and family. If they're looking for a new podcast, you know when to go to, right? Be kind to one another, and we will see you next time on Asshole Court.